pray together. Once again, our Father, as we look into your word, thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit is able to take the living and powerful word of God and to apply it to our hearts and minds, use the word of God to bring people to life spiritually in Christ and to also bring those who are in Christ into deeper life in Christ even unto maturity. We pray that you would have your way among us during this time as we look into your word. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. came across a couple of quotes this week. Uh, One is along the lines of something that uh, Anna Sandoval said. Some people are like trees. They take forever to grow up. Another quote by Ogden Nash You are young once, but you can stay immature indefinitely. Maybe you know someone in your life who, even though they've reached the milestone of 18 or 21 years of age, or they may have a license that means they can drive a car, those are not necessarily the benchmarks that establish whether someone has truly reached maturity. I came across this couple of uh, a list of some signs of maturity, which I thought were quite helpful. Maybe you would add to this list, but certainly there it would include some of these, I would think. How do you know if someone really is mature? Well, are they able to keep long-term commitments? That's a good one. How about uh, are they able to take full responsibility for their actions? Wow, that's a big one. Realizing how much the person doesn't know takes a while for some people to realize they don't know everything. Uh, Saving more than you spend. Some people are still working on that one. Um, Being able to take care of yourself as well as others. Valuing long-term benefits over instant gratification. Boy, that's a really good one. Um, Admitting when you're wrong. Being able to learn from your mistakes and move on. And knowing your strengths and weaknesses. And maybe you'd like to add to that list as well. But if we were to turn that question of what are some of the signs of maturity, and we turn it around and say, well, what are some of the signs of spiritual maturity? How do you know if someone is moving in that direction? And clearly in the scriptures, we know that there are several outlines of of an idea of what is involved in spiritual maturity. And obviously one of the more familiar text is Ephesians chapter 4, in which we read these insights. Paul writes, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects unto Christ. So you can clearly sense that Paul is saying, listen, we've got to grow up in the Christian fight, in the Christian faith, in the Christian life. And at least you would say in that text and several of the verses past that, the text would go on to say there are two marks at least of spiritual maturity. One is to be a person who is discerning, that we understand the truth, we're able to understand what is not true, spiritually speaking, based on the Word of God, and also to be responsible as a Christian who follows Christ. Well, the text in front of us today is another text that uh, speaks to this issue of growing in spiritual maturity. 
And it's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So if you have your Bible or your pad, uh, if you would make sure that you found your way there, you have that in front of you, page 1446 in the Pew Bible. 2, Tim, 2 Peter 3, 18. In a sense, you could say that what Peter does at the conclusion of this second letter is that he says to believers, listen, keep your spiritual GPS uh, set to pursuing spiritual maturity. Don't lose track of that. Keep moving in that direction. That's the destination to which you should be striving. Notice what he says there. 2 Peter 3.18, keep on growing. It's actually a present uh, active verb there. Keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What Peter is going to emphasize in this book is he's going to say, listen, the gospel that imparts new life in Christ is the same gospel that acts like a pituitary gland in the human body. The pituitary gland is a very tiny gland and it is the gland that kicks in various stages of growth when you are in those development years uh, to help the body grow. And so just like that, the gospel acts in a spiritual sense of promoting spiritual growth until we attain to the full stature of Christ, Ephesians 4. So now as we conclude our series on holiness that we've been going through for several weeks now, I want us to consider this morning points. Here's where I'm going. The first point is this. The gospel is going to help us in sustaining ongoing growth. Ongoing growth. Secondly, the gospel is also going to help produce diverse areas of growth in our heart and life. And thirdly, the gospel will help spur us on with several means of spiritual growth. So the first one is the idea of sustaining ongoing spiritual growth. And I want to tell you a story about years ago uh, when Joyce and I lived in Massachusetts. We eventually moved into a home that was sort of up on a hill a little bit. And then on the, uh, down at the bottom of the hill, there was a creek and there was a little bit of a flatland area. And I decided to take a tiller and, and a road tiller and I dug it all up and planted a vegetable garden there one year. And so I was pleased and surprised, to be honest with you, that all the seeds I put down and all the plants I put in the ground, they actually began to grow. I was shocked. And so I enjoyed seeing all these different vegetables growing there for a while. And uh, the one I had never seen grow before that I planted was broccoli. How many of you have ever seen a broccoli plant? Okay, some of you have. I think mostly I grew on that plant with green bugs. I don't know about you, but that's mostly what I had on that thing. It was really weird. But I was uh, noticing that as time got on, I was reaping and picking vegetables out of this garden, and this broccoli plant just sort of stalled there. It wasn't doing anything. I didn't see any broccoli growing, and all I saw were green worms all over it. And I began to ask myself, what's wrong with this thing? It sort of hit a growth plateau. It just stopped growing. I never did get any broccoli off that thing. If I did, I wouldn't eat it anyway because it had green bugs all over it, like I said. All right. Anyway, I began to realize that the problem that the plant stalled in its growth was one reason is because I was so late getting things planted and the growing season was so short up north in Massachusetts. And that this particular plant was put in such a place in the garden that it was sort of hindered from direct sunlight because of the trees that were in the area. 
And so it just sort of stalled out there. Well, the Apostle Paul, I mean, sorry, the Apostle Peter is concerned about believers that he knew at the end of his life, and he's concerned that he thinks, as I'm leaving, I'm about to die, I'm concerned that they are going to stall in their spiritual growth. That they're going to reach this sort of area of growth, and then boom, that's it. They don't continue to mature in the faith. And one of the reasons why he's concerned is because Peter knows that the readers possibly are going to be get discouraged after a while. They're going to be perhaps distracted by this widespread cynicism that would begin to be voiced by various people who were mockers. He used the word there in 2 Peter chapter 3. False teachers, which he warns are going to come. People who are teaching things that are not true about Christ and not true about what it means to follow Christ. And they're also just making fun of the fact that Jesus made all these promises about he's going to come and set up this kingdom, a millennial earthly kingdom. And and they're going to say, well, where is he? We don't see him. He hasn't kept that promise. This is a joke. And Peter knows that in the shadows of worldliness, always creeping in, might hinder the growth cycle of God's people because we're called to be living godly and uh, lives and to have follow sound doctrine. And Peter reminds these believers, listen, you know the gospel. You know that the, you are taught that there is one true God, a holy God who hates sin, but a God who in love and mercy and grace provided his son Jesus Christ, who never sin, to offer himself as a sacrifice upon the cross for our sin, was raised from the dead the third day, that anyone who repents and believes in him will be saved. They'll be spared from the final judgment. And one of the things that Paul, Peter keeps saying, sorry, I keep saying Paul, Peter keeps saying in this text, at the end of 2 Peter 3, is that God is patient. Don't misunderstand this lull in the action here, as it, as it seems like. One day Jesus Christ is going to return. It's true. But for now, he's holding back that day of judgment. He's giving time for others to repent. He's giving time for others to repent and believe. And in the meantime, God's people are urged to do what? Verse 18, to keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and, verse 11, to also live holy lives and to pursue godliness as a way of life. Now every generation since the first century, all of Christians in that time, since Jesus first promised to return after his ascension into glory, God's people have lived with a sense of, where is he? Oh, I wish he would come back soon. And there's some measure of disappointment in the delay of Jesus in his coming and his establishment of his kingdom and putting things in their rightful order. We don't know the exact day or hour, right? And because we are waiting and because we don't know the exact hour, there is a danger, a spiritual danger that we all face. And that is to become distracted or to become lazy and get Get off the mark of what we should be doing. And some of us get seduced by the world. 
Some of us become sucked into the world's philosophy that talks about the materialistic appeal of living a life of comfort, living a life of self-fulfillment. And Peter reminds the readers of Jesus' precious promises. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about the magnificent promises that Jesus has given his children. The gospel promises that Jesus' followers share in the life of God. That those who faith, have faith in Christ, they now share in this life of communion with God. It's amazing to think that we have that privilege. As if, if you look at that verse in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Peter uses language I don't fully understand myself, but he says that we become partakers of the divine nature. That's incredible. What a privilege. So Peter's urging his followers there of Jesus in light of their cleansing from sin, which Jesus provided through his death on the cross in our place. He says, listen here, we need to exert diligence to add godly character to our lives. Those qualities of our interaction with other people, it should be evident that we are people who are becoming more and more like Christ in our character qualities. He lists those in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 1, 2 Peter. And he also reminds them that God has graciously called believers to experience and to enjoy God's glory and God's excellency. He keeps putting before them, do you realize the privileges that are yours as a child of God? And then I think he's sort of implying that he's concerned there. He says, listen, I'm urging you as fellow believers not to rest on the sidelines, not to get too comfortable in the shade. The shade of where the world's philosophy tends to be widely propagated and followed. Because the worldview of naturalism says, listen, the world is all that there is. What you see is all there is. The worldview of naturalism says, therefore, if that is all there is, then you need to live for the present moment. You need to go for all the gusto right now. That's why you, so many people live the philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Tomorrow you may die. So it's all about self-indulgence, self-gratification. And Peter calls the followers of Jesus to reject that worldview, to keep on growing, to keep on becoming more like Christ, more full of His grace and compassion for the lost, to not lose sight of the fact that the delay of Christ's return is to give us more opportunities to share the gospel. Make him known. I wonder if you're here today, if you were to ask the question, are you seeing signs in your life of plateauing, if you will? Plateauing in your spiritual life. That is, you're no longer sort of, you're sort of stalled in your spiritual growth. You're sitting on the sidelines. You're taking it easy in the shade. Are you hanging out in the shadows? of compromise in your life, carelessly indulging in sin patterns that you find yourself trapped in and refusing to repent. My friend, keep growing in grace. Keep refreshing yourself in the gospel. Keep reminding yourself of who Christ is and what He's done for you and who you are in Christ and what His real purpose for your life is. The gospel reveals God's holy hatred for sin. But it also reveals God's gracious provision for complete cleansing, 
complete forgiveness and complete enjoyment of God in Christ. Is your passion for sharing the gospel, is your passion for evangelism waning because your heart has become caught up in the world's system of thinking? That you begin to think about, what can I do to make my life easy and enjoy and be satisfied with what I like to do in the world, rather than becoming compassionately concerned about the lost around you? Are we more concerned with our, cover, our own comfort than we are the souls of those who face a Christless eternity? And so first thing we see in this text then is clearly an ongoing sense of growth and grace and knowledge and the gospel works that in it. Secondly, I want us to consider now how the gospel produces diverse growth in faith. Diverse. I have two thoughts here under this second point. Um, and the first is this. The gospel, when applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, is meant to bring symmetrical spiritual growth. Symmetrical spiritual growth. You say, what does that mean? Symmetrical spiritual growth. Well, I have in mind here Galatians 5, and I'm, so I'm going to take a little bit of break and move into Galatians 5 for a second here. Because I want to talk about the fact that the gospel, when it begins to change our hearts, it does so also changing our minds. It also changes our affections over time. And as our hearts and minds are changed, our character then will begin to change also. The way we respond to things going on around us, it will change because of the power of the gospel. And so Paul contemplates that in Galatians chapter 5, and he contrasts the works of the flesh, the, the way we normally respond as an unbeliever and no evidence of the Spirit working in us, that's contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. And so notice he has here in a list of Galatians chapter 5, he mentions there the list of the works of the flesh. He talks about four categories of sin. There are sins of sexual brokenness. There are sins of religious brokenness, if you will, of worshiping all the wrong kinds of things in this world. There are sins, thirdly, of relational brokenness. Talks about people who are angry and out of control and frustrated with each other and resentful. And then lastly, there is substance abuse or addictive behaviors that are brokenness as characterizes one's life. Did you see the list there? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, witchcraft or sorcery, enmities, strife. You see all this friction with other people, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. And then those lastly, drunkenness and carousing. Carousing is another word for out-of-control parties that people are attending. You see the inner and outward evidence of the lack of spiritual fervor and love for Christ is seen in that kind of choices of life. But notice how he contrasts that with the character traits that the Spirit of God produces in a believer, and he lists them there in verse 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
So he's not talking about IQ. He's not talking about your ability to remember things. He's talking about character qualities and what the Spirit of God does. Now, Tim Keller, I heard one time, made such a helpful point when he noted that in looking at this text, it does not say the fruits of the Spirit. Right? Did you see that? Look at your text. It says the fruit of the Spirit. And so he began to contemplate what is intended here, and he said that basically these qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, these qualities are to grow together, that they are qualities that are a unity, they, they, are, they are to uh, grow like a bunch of grapes instead of one piece of fruit, like an apple or an orange or a pear. No, think of them as a cluster of grapes. They all grow at the same time, together in unity. And these character traits are to be found in every believer. And then this is very convicting and powerful point he made this, this. He said this, We are only as spiritually mature as our weakest trait. We are only as spiritually mature as the weakest trait of that list in Ephesians 5. What does that mean? Well, some of us, look at our lives and we say, well, you know, I'm sort of pleased that I do see at least the quality of gentleness. And I can get along with people, I deal with other people pretty gently. But the danger is that there might be revealing in our hearts a lack of courage to at times faithfully confront other people with their sin. Because we're so inclined to be gentle and be a people pleaser maybe we don't want to speak the truth to people who need to hear the truth in a direct and loving fashion which is galatians 6 where he says you should restore someone who's fallen in sin some of us may be self-disciplined i do things just right on the right time at the right moment i can have the right way to do it and we're disciplined that's a good thing but is it possible that we also being so self-disciplined that we lack patience and kindness with people who are different from us, people who are not as disciplined as we are? Is it possible that our joy is short-lived and it fades away when adversity comes into our lives? Then we appear to be a person who has no patience. We have no sense of endurance to deal with things that are difficult and our joy goes flying out the window. When spiritual growth takes place, Hopefully, we will see God by His Spirit working in all areas of our character. All of these character defects, defects will be those things that the Spirit of God is working on them. And I don't know about you, but I certainly see my need for spiritual growth. Every time I read that list, I'm saying, Lord Jesus, help me. i got a long way to go. So the idea of um, symmetrical growth is the one point I want to make of that. The second thing I want to talk about of this diverse growth is the fact that the gospel produces balanced growth. Balanced growth. What do I mean by this? Well, going now back to Peter, his call for these believers to grow in grace and knowledge involves not only growing in our understanding, in our mind, and our ability to grasp and hold on to truth but it also involves a practical dimension of learning to share and to love other people with deeds of grace. It's so easy to get off balance in the Christian life. It's so easy to not maintain 
the sense of being involved in practical areas of love and ministry to people in need, and only to focus on maybe just knowing doctrine, knowing truth, and just filling our minds with biblical facts. I had a memory go back through my my mind this past week about a time when I was about in junior high school. We lived on uh, top of a hill in West Virginia, and we were the center house, and uh, we had a number of big trees in our front yard, and uh, big oak trees, and I remember one storm we had in the summertime, lots of heavy wind, and we came out of the house after the storm was over, and here was one of our big oak trees had fallen in our yard. It's a big, big tree. Uh, thankfully, it did not topple uh, onto the house. It went actually over the hill and down across the road that was in front of us, blocking the driveway for the next house on the hill. And after the storm, we went outside. We we're trying to figure out now why would this storm, why would this tree fall? Because the tree was not dead; it was very much alive. And after a while, you look, you notice that the roots were exposed when the tree fell over. And you're looking at this cluster of roots, and you realize these roots had been severed on the side of the tree that was right up against the driveway that they had put in not a couple years ago, but previous to that. And that because those roots had been cut to make way for the driveway, that was the weak side of the tree. And when the wind blew a certain direction, boom, there it went. And I thought to myself, what an interesting principle that the tree is not stable because its growth in the root system was not balanced. It didn't have roots growing out in all directions, holding it in place. Similarly, I would say the book of James teaches us the same, doesn't it, in a spiritual way? James emphasizes the point that true faith must include more than just affirming sound doctrine. Because he says even demons will admit certain spiritual truths and say, you know, there is one God, but they are clearly people who are not inclined to do good. And so he says there needs to be a balance of knowing the doctrine and doing and knowing truth, affirming it, believing it, but also matching that with an outward fruit of compassionate response to people around us who are in need. He mentions in chapter 1, verse 22 and 27, the idea that we need to be a doers of the word, not just people that hear the word. And he says we need to be what? True religions that take care of widows, orphans, people who have... Lots of needs and aren't able to meet those needs. So I ask myself and ask you, are, are we growing in good works? Is our love and devotion for Jesus Christ made visible with acts of charity that we're involved in? Extending our, ourselves and helping others around us. Now that could be taking place in a family, of course, but there are many opportunities of people around us that we are so busy, nobody wants to take the time to get involved to find out what the needs are. But growth in grace develops minds that love and treasure sound doctrine. That's true. But they also extend out hands in mercy and compassion and love to other people, giving ourselves to good deeds. So the kind of balanced growth, that's what the gospel seeks to do in our hearts and lives. That leads me to one more point here, and stay with me. We're not finished here yet. 
But this is point number three. The gospel spurs on several means of spiritual growth. Several means of spiritual growth. And of course, this text I have in my mind here is John 15. What we read earlier uh, was read for us by Keith. In John 15, Jesus refers to the Father's desire to see much fruit in the lives of his disciples. Not just a little fruit, but much fruit. Much spiritual fruit. And Jesus went on to say that Christian growth will never take place apart from regular habitual communion with Jesus Christ. So he uses the analogy of a grape plant, a grapevine. And he says there is a grapevine that goes down to the ground, and as it comes up, there's all these branches that are probably held in place and uh, propped up there so that they can hold those um, clusters of grapes that when they finally grow. And Jesus says, listen, we are the branches all connected to the vine, and he is the vine. And branches will never produce grapes, obviously, if they are not vitally attached to the vine, right? They're not actually attached to the vine and drawing from the sap and from the living part of that vine. They're not going to survive. They're not going to produce anything. In the same way, if we're not carrying on communion with Jesus Christ through prayer, through times of meditation and reading the Word of God. We're never going to see change in our outer life. We're not going to see the, the evidence of becoming more holy, becoming people who live more godly lives. And so I, one of the sub-points we have here under number three is that we need to be involved in the private means of grace. The private means of grace. These are things you do Apart from the crowd, apart from people, people this is when you go into your closet, Jesus says, the places where it's quiet and there's no one else around you to distract you. We're reminded that without Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. There's not going to be any growth in grace. There's not going to be any growth in fruitfulness apart from the one who is life. The one who is indeed sharing in his life with the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, share their lives together. We need to spare our life and share it with God himself. And Christ offers us to commune with him. And notice in verse 7 of John 15, he talks about prayer, he talks about in the Word. I wonder if it could be true of us that one of the reasons that our spiritual growth has stalled is perhaps because we have not taken the time. And it takes time, folks. It takes time to let your mind unwind and to begin to be still before the Lord, to offer to Him our thoughts about what's concerning to us, things that trouble us, the things that we're struggling with, the things that we regret, and to confide in Him, to open our lives to Him, to deal with Him as the one who is our shepherd, the one who is our advocate, our physician, our helper, our bridegroom. He gave himself for you that he might bring us close into communion with himself. And I wonder if it takes us some, some going through some difficult times before God does humble us and he gets our attention. He realizes that one of the reasons we go through times of suffering and affliction is to get our attention. To say, you need me. You don't realize how weak you are. 
And again, if you did not get this article by Johnny Erickson Tata that I sent out a link to it earlier this week, then you talk to me afterwards and I'll get you a copy of it somehow. A woman spent 50 years in a wheelchair and she's thanking God for that wheelchair. Why? She said, I'd rather be in that wheelchair and know Jesus the way I do than to be on my feet and go about my life and not have any relationship with Him at all. And so you bring to the Lord your sorrows. You bring to the Lord Jesus your, your joys. You bring to the Lord your failings, your successes, your needs, your longings. He's the one you turn to. He will change you as you open up your heart and life to Him. I'm afraid we get so busy, we got so many things plugged into our ears or appealing to our sight to look at screens and things that distract us so much. It takes discipline to say, I need to create some space in my life where I can talk to the Lord and He can talk to me in His Word. And one final point I'll just make on this thing and I'll just be done here. Communion with Jesus Christ not only happens in the private means of grace, it also happens through the public means of grace. And that's what we're doing here today. That we are blessed to be a part of joining together with other members of a local church, sharing with other fellow believers a fellowship that is unique as we are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we attend the regular worship services here. We partake of the Lord's Supper that we as a family of God are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're reminding you that He's coming back. And every time we partake of this meal, we're remembering what He did and what He set in motion, the beginning of the redemption, and then we're seeing that someday He's going to bring it to fulfillment. We encourage each other in that regard. So fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ is covenant community. The local church is one means that God uses to spur us on to give us the elbow that says, keep pursuing love and good deeds. Why? Because Christ is coming back. And he's called us to imitate him and to be like him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who deals with us so graciously. So mercifully, Lord, in the, in, in the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, we who were cut off from you, had no hope in this world, who were just fine pursuing other things other than you, and yet living empty lives, how we thank you that you have sought us out, you have called us, you have chosen us in Christ, and you've revealed yourself to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the gospel can change our hearts, can make us new on the inside. And Lord, the work you've begun in us is the work you want to see completed. And so Lord, I pray that you would motivate us to pursue spiritual growth. Help some of us, Lord, who are stalled in our growth and we've become perhaps slack and careless and indifferent and caught up in the things of this world. Lord, help us, we pray, to find a fresh sense of communion with Jesus Christ. And we pray that your word would come alive to us, that we would have a great passion for your glory, for our lives to not be consumed with just being comfortable in this world, but Lord, that we might live for your glory 
that we might be involved in making a difference in the lives of unbelievers around us and helping them know you and finding you to be the greatest treasure anyone in this world will ever know. Lord, have your way with us, we pray. And may we see your growth take place in us until you return. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.